What are the images of 2021 that are burned into your mind? It's something that I've been thinking about as the year comes to a close. Thinking about the work that I made in my little closet. Thinking about the changes in my life. Seeing the faces of colleagues and friends and loved ones that I was finally able to reconnect with in real life. The shows that I watched, the music that I listened to while cooking, the way that I kind of cackled to myself when I heard that, yes, J-Lo and Ben Affleck are in fact back together. I remember the underlying anxiety all the way through. And the selfie I took when I got my first vaccine shot. And then my second. And then my third. As we thought about how to take a look back, we were moved by the stories of our colleagues who took the images of 2021. These photojournalists managed to capture and define the year. And today, we're going to spend time and give you space to look back at this year through their eyes. It was a strange but beautiful moment. That light behind her just, you know, makes her shine and makes her glow. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 30th. Today, a farewell to 2021 from us here at Post Reports and from the photojournalists who witnessed this year's biggest stories and gave us a view into them. Winter 2021. A photo can stop you and transport you to a place in time and give you the space to reflect. <laughs> We're being admonished not to take pictures. No pictures, no pictures. This is off the record. Put that camera down. This is Washington Post staff photojournalist Bill O'Leary describing his experience on Capitol Hill on January 6th. We had no visuals outside the door, but, but you could start to hear things. Shouting and banging. On the floor, there were staff members and I think even a few representatives starting to drag furniture from parts of the room, desks and benches, and were piling it up to fortify the main door to the chamber. And then uh, you hear two pops, some people say gun, guns get pulled, and everything just sort of froze at that point. That's when the security and our handlers started hustling us. Okay, let's go, everybody out. As that was going on, I got off a few quick pictures. The last pictures I took, which was uh, people inside the chamber with guns drawn and pointed at the door. And in the door's broken window, you can see the face of one of the rioting protesters. Over the next few days, I remember seeing barricades set up around downtown D.C. 
I remember getting texts from friends. Most of them were in the form of, oh my gosh, are you okay? And of course, I remember that iconic image from Bill O'Leary on the front page of the Washington Post. And then somehow, just a few weeks later... I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear... That I will faithfully execute... That I will faithfully execute... The office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. I remember how surreal it was to see all the socially distant pods of people on the west steps of the Capitol. Bernie Sanders with his homemade mittens became a meme. We all watched as Joseph Biden and Kamala Harris were sworn into office. And what I really remember about that day is Amanda Gorman, the youth poet laureate, and how she stole the show in that brilliant yellow jacket and that bright red headband. American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. For there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Tonight, the FBI is stepping up its efforts to counter the shocking surge in attacks on Asian Americans. They've skyrocketed in the past year as some falsely blame Asians for the pandemic. In March, we heard reports of a man who walked into an Atlanta spa and shot and killed eight people inside. The Post assigned photojournalist Hannah Yoon to cover the event. I'm a freelance photographer based in Philadelphia. So I am South Korean. My parents were born there. I was born in Canada. So I did feel like a great responsibility to, I guess, represent collectively what many of us were feeling. You know, sometimes when you are covering a shooting, you can't be too emotional. And so with this, it was the opposite. It was like, be in touch with your feelings, talk to people, use their words to guide you. So when I got to Atlanta, I thought, well, I can take a picture of the sign where it says in Korean, 하늘에서 평안하세요, which means like rest in, in heaven peacefully. And I thought, well, how do I like use light to highlight it to kind of it's being like wrapped around with light. And so I actually carry this. Um, it's a prism. It's like a triangular prism. And I'm just putting it in front of my camera to mix the light, and so it's not such a direct photo. And I felt like that represented kind of what a lot of us were feeling, that there were layers of feelings and emotions going on at this time. Maybe we would get hit with, like, sadness or rage or frustration, and then it would just kind of, like, float away and it would come back again. I think that's just what happens, you know, when you experience something so big. And a lot of people I met, they also felt like this was their first time really thinking about, you know, um, what it means to be Asian American or what it means to be Korean American in the U.S. So it's kind of brand new. We're together to mourn the victims of racism and violence 
their mission, Stop Asian Hate. I remember that the Atlanta spa shooting really affected our team here at Post Reports. Alexis Diao and Rena Flores, who are both Asian-American women, produced a moving interview with reporter Anne Brannigan. In the piece, Lexi said that the shooting highlighted how Asian-American women are treated in the U.S. This is an excerpt from our episode entitled, A Specific Kind of Racism. I mean, that's the thing that I keep thinking about. You know, that's the thing that I keep thinking about is like, People say like, oh, well, you know, you're a model minority or you're, you know, you're Asian American. So so you're, you know, your plight and your struggles are are like lesser because, you know, you guys are smart and you make money and, you know, because you're you're pretty. And it's like that doesn't make it easier. Spring 2021. In April, the Derek Chauvin trial was coming to a close. Chauvin, of course, was on trial for the killing of George Floyd. Joshua Lott is a staff photojournalist for The Post, and he was in Minnesota covering that trial. Then he got word of a shooting involving a police officer and a young man nearby. That turned out to be former officer Kimberly Potter shooting Dante Wright. And when Joshua went to a gathering for Dante Wright, he took this absolutely breathtaking photo that just cuts right through me. Here, he tells the story of that photo and how he's used to covering protests and reactions in the wake of police violence. I think in the last year, I mean, I you know covered George Floyd and you know the trial for Derek Chauvin. Andrew Brown Jr. was killed. Breonna Taylor, you know, Jacob Blake, I go from one to another to another. And I just keep asking myself, when when is it going to stop? I was covering an event in St. Paul. Just received the message that someone else just got shot in Brooklyn Center all while, you know, everything is still going on with George Floyd. And so I was kind of, uh, just kind of shocked that it was, you know, still happening, especially in the Minneapolis area. I think I, sh- I showed up and one of the local protesters out there and he was telling me that they had just shot this kid, Dante Wright, who was killed by Brooklyn Center police officer in Brooklyn Center, which is right outside Minneapolis. And people were showing up by the masses. And then some things just started to kick off where, you know, protesters were, you know, jumping on police cars and throwing chunks of concrete into the windshield of police cars and just yelling at the police. And there was a moment there where it just got out of hand and I felt like it was time for me to go because I didn't have my vest or I didn't have my helmet on. So, and then I seen this moment happen where these guys were like locking arms. And so I just, you know, pointed my camera that way. And then Amaj, just like looked at me. Who was one of Dante Wright's super close friends. And he kind of like just he just, man, tears rolling down his eyes and the look was just so intense and it was a look of, you know, you need to feel my pain. And it wasn't a look where you need to like put down the camera and just get the hell out of here. It was just kind of like feel my pain. Like they just killed my best friend and it's happening again and it's happening right before 
you know, Derek Chauvin goes to trial for George Floyd. Got his phone number and told me, you know, I want to stay in contact with him. And so just uh, last week, I've, um, I was able to meet up with him and I was talking to him and he was just telling me everything that's been going on. And it's just, it's been really difficult for him. And he goes to the memorial site almost every day. And when he was talking to me, he just like broke down in tears because he's just still devastated by the, by the killing of his friend. to know uh, where this case will go. Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer, uh, videotaped in that, that infamous tape that showed his knee on the neck of uh, George Floyd uh, for nine and a half minutes. Just a few days after Joshua Lott took that photo of Amaje Driver staring at the camera, the verdict was reached at Derek Chauvin's trial for the killing of George Floyd. I remember I watched it live with a couple of our producers, and as the judge was starting to read the verdict, I remember thinking, whatever happens in the next five seconds is going to have huge implications for this country. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Count two, guilty. Count three, guilty. We're taking you to the heart of our southern border as people continue crossing over at an alarming rate. Yeah, the numbers are staggering. Unaccompanied minor crossings jumped 230% just last year alone, just in the Rio Grande Valley sector. And for families crossing, that number is up right now almost 500%. A few months later, in May, reporter Arlise Hernandez went down to the Texas-Mexico border with staff photojournalist Michael Robinson Chavez. Both Arlise and Michael do a lot of reporting on migrants coming to the United States. The story of migrants seeking asylum across the U.S.-Mexico border is a story that feels like it's never-ending and crushing and personal every time I hear about it. Michael talked about a particularly moving photo that feels like you're making the crossing yourself. It's of a woman walking through the brush, holding her child. Michael took the photo while ducking down in the reeds. I was working on a story with um, Areles Hernandez, and we met up on the border to do a ride-along with a local constable. And he took us into this area that is kind of a well-trodden path for migrants coming over from Mexico, usually coming up from Central America. They were actually counting on being caught so they could apply for asylum. You know, we saw that evening at least a couple hundred people that had crossed. I got down low and I wanted to use some of the reeds and, and tall grass as an element of the composition in the foreground. So it kind of felt like you were seeing what they're seeing as they're coming across. You know, they hear rumors from where they're coming from. They hear a rumor that, oh, Biden is the president now. The, the doors have swung open, which in fact wasn't true at all. And so they're unsure of what the reality is that they're going to encounter. Some are loaded onto planes, sent to Ciudad Juarez and, and deported immediately. Others are granted asylum hearings, but that number is very few. And then others are just um, detained until they can be deported back into Mexico or perhaps their country of origin. 
You can see her pants are all muddied from scrambling up the, the bank on the Rio Grande. They have to get in the water on one side. You know, it's a dangerous river, a lot of swirling currents. So it's it's sort of the last treacherous step on what's probably been a very intense journey. Ready or not, the cicadas are coming. After nearly two decades underground, three species of the Brudex cicadas will emerge early this summer, and they're expected to head the eastern United States. This year, billions of periodical cicadas ended their 17-year lifespan on the East Coast. And we were treated to an otherworldly hum from these creatures. Whoa. Whoa. Definitely. Whoa. <laughs> wow, it's so much louder. That is producer Bishop Sand foraging through Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C. with Emma Telkoff. I did not join them on this particular outing, but I have to say that I did warm up to these things after a lot of encouragement from Bishop and producer Ted Muldoon. In fact, Bishop, who's recording me right now, he is actively pumping his fists in the air as I'm saying this. And I was not the only one to feel this kind of connection with these large red-eyed insects that cover the trees and united people in this once-in-a-17-year event. Our own managing editor at The Post, Cameron Barr, he said that he felt a kind of deep pain as well. This is a clip from Cameron during an episode entitled On Cicada Time. I became sort of philosophically empathetic. I mean, after all, they, they come up to mate and to really have an adventure in a way, to, to come into the light for a brief period to, to experience the, the miracle of, of insect romance, to, to, to find a partner. Uh, then the females lay their eggs and then they die after 17 years underground. I mean, there's something profound about that, about that story, about that journey. You know, I mean, that's, I think we can all relate to that in one way or another, this idea of, of long periods of struggle followed by brief periods of ecstasy. Summer 2021. After the cicadas laid their eggs and fell to the ground, we settled in for the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. U.S. women are led by the incomparable Simone Biles. She should have the chance to win six Olympic medals in Tokyo. I remember focusing on Simone Biles. She had the most world championship medals ever, 25, and was casually mentioned as the best female gymnast of all time. 
Tony Sandys was one of the few photojournalists allowed in to watch the competition. And she managed to capture this image of Simone Biles, where it seems like she could be levitating in space, perfectly horizontal, legs flexed, lights shining behind her. Here's Tony. This photo is on the last day of the women gymnastics competition. This was the balance beam, one of her premier events, and there was just a question of whether or not she would come out. And she just, she nailed the dismount. It was just perfect. It's been a long week. It's been a long Olympic process. It's been a long year. We're just a little bit too stressed out, um, but we should be out here having fun, and sometimes that's not the case. Several days before, she had withdrawn from the team competition when she got the case of the yips on her vault. I think to an extent it really made people think and go, okay, maybe this really is an issue. Maybe, maybe you know, we are not paying enough attention to mental health, you know. Yeah, I say um, put mental health first because if you don't, then you're not going to enjoy your sport and you're not going to succeed as much as you want to. So it's okay sometimes to even sit out the big competitions. And I, I had the opportunity to meet Simone earlier in the spring when she was training before the Olympics. And just listening to her story and what she had been through with the U.S. gymnastics and, um, you know, the Nassir case, like, you know, she's been through a lot to, to get here to where she was. So I just, you know, I'm really proud of her that she went out and, and, and competed in this final event. Last night in Kabul, the United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history. In the middle of August, the United States pulled out of Afghanistan after two decades of war. The people there were desperate to leave. I remember being struck by the officials who were involved in the withdrawal, like Ben Wallace, the UK defense secretary, he had this genuine ache for the people that he knew were going to be left behind. Some people won't get back. Some people won't get back. And um, we will have to uh, do our best in third countries to process those people. Why do you feel it so personally, Mr. Wallace? Because <laughs> I'm a soldier. Um, because it's sad and the West has done what it's done. And we have to do our very best, Nick, to get people out and stand by our obligations. And 20 years of sacrifice um, is what it is. And through all of this, we've lived through another year of a global pandemic. Today, Arkansas saw the most hospitalizations in a single day since the pandemic began. That means since March of the last States year. Again, reporting more than one new case every second. The country had not hit that mark since With February. With starting in less Valentine's than three day. weeks, children in Fairfax County are getting their COVID-19 vaccination as the transmission rate in the county heads in the wrong direction. You know, at the beginning of the outbreak, nearly every reporter at The Washington Post was pulled into some kind of coverage of the virus. 
Then when the waves of COVID cases rose and fell and then rose and then fell, many reporters started going back, more or less, to their assignments. But many journalists have stayed on the story. Staff photojournalist Michael S. Williamson volunteered to cover COVID cases in hospitals during the early days of the pandemic. And he is still covering COVID. He remembers a story that he covered in August of this year. We saw in the paper that an 11-year-old had just passed. Um, Her name was Jordan. They literally held this little ceremony in the parking lot of her school in West Memphis. So when you first get there, you know, hi, mom, how you doing? I'm so sorry. And I knew all about her case, talked to the pastor. And it did. It just built. It built and built. I mean, at one point, she just completely collapsed. She was wailing, just wailing. But the most interesting thing that came about from this shoot was when I got the mom off to the side afterwards and everybody calmed down, I was the last visitor to leave. The press was gone and most of the people who came, schoolmates, whatnot, maybe six of us still there, including Kayla and the mom, Ricky the dad, and the brother. And she said, I really want you to tell the world, wear your mask, get your shots, be careful. One of the reasons I'm willing to be so public about Jordan's death is I hope that her death saves somebody. Now, what's amazing about this story is the very next day, I went to a mass vaccine event in Little Rock. And the third car in line was a man with his just turned 12-year-old son. And chatting with him, whatever. And he says, yeah, he's pretty nervous. It's going to take five people to hold him down. Lots of struggles. And they give him the shot. And I said, thanks, Dad. You know, the name and everything and all that. And he says, you know, we would have never come down here. But I saw that story on the news about that little girl. So sometimes the system works. It was this strange but beautiful moment. I did 9-11. I've covered wars in Central America and coups overseas. This is the most important story I'll ever cover, and I'm treating it like that. As we look to the new year with a virus that continues to change from Delta to Omicron, and as we all stretch our emotional and physical resources, we hope that you and your loved ones stay safe and informed. The photojournalists you heard in this episode were Bill O'Leary, Hannah Yoon, Joshua Lott, Michael Robinson Chavez, Tony Sandys, and Michael S. Williamson. You should absolutely check out the full Year in Photos presentation to see all of these incredible images from throughout 2021. We will put a link to that in today's show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for 2021 on Post Reports. 
This episode was produced and mixed by Bishop Sand. Our team also includes Alexis Diao, Sabi Robinson, Lena Mohammed, Ted Muldoon, Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Sean Carter, Emma Talkoff, Jordan Marie Smith, Renita Jablonski, Ariel Plotnik, Renny Svernovsky, and me, Martine Powers. We're taking off Friday for New Year's Eve, but we will be back in 2022 with more stories from The Washington Post. 